You are listening to Sustainable Sounds. Sustainable Sounds is the podcast from the Fife branch of the Scottish Green Party. Teo McLeod talks to those who are making a difference. Check out the Scottish Greens website at greens.scot. I am Fiona McCohen. I'm a member of the West Fife sub-branch of the Scottish Green Party. And you have been listening to the Sustainable Sounds podcast in the comfort of your own home. Hello and welcome to episode six of Sustainable Sounds, the podcast brought to you by the Fife branch of the Scottish Green Party. You join us today with our final episode of series one with a special guest today, Fiona McOwen who is the Scottish Green Party's candidate in the upcoming local elections for the Wasif Ward in Fife. Hey, Fiona. Hello there. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? So far, we know that you are the candidate for Wasif. Are you from Wasif? No, actually, I was born and brought up in Edinburgh, and that's where I spent my formative years. But I moved to Fife in 1990. And so I feel that I've now lived in Fife for almost, not quite, but almost longer than I lived in Edinburgh. And I moved to the lovely village of Lime Kilns, which is in the Rasyth Ward, because the Rasyth Ward includes Lime Kilns, our neighbouring village of Charleston, and Patty's Muir, and also going up the Bray as far as Crombie, which used to be, well, still is, still has a naval presence. It used to have much more of a presence, but it still has a minor connection with the Royal Navy. It's a coastal area. It, coastal, yeah. I look out of my bedroom window and I see the lovely River Forth and... We have a sailing club just along at the end of our road. And so at the moment, the boats are all out of the water. Um, this coming weekend, Easter weekend, the boats will all be back in the water. And so that will be, you know, quite a sight. You know, that's quite a sight to see. Minor inconvenience because what happens is a giant crane comes along the road. And so no cars are allowed to park along one side of the road so that there's enough room for the crane to come and go but you know mainly the residents don't complain about that too much. Well I suppose in one aspect it's a local community bit of cultural engagement. Yes. Also as uh, as a member of the Green Party I think we can promote alternative uses to transport to cars. Yes yeah exactly exactly exactly. I don't think many people are rowing across to Edinburgh for the no. daily commute, but it's... Uh... <laughs> Not yet. It has happened in the past, obviously. That was a primary mode of transport a long time ago, was boats travelling across the fort. 
to take passengers, including Queen Margaret of Denmark and all the rest of it, you know. And then there was a while, actually, when a ferry ran from, now I'm going to say it ran from Kirkcaldy to Edinburgh to Granton, um, Kirkcaldy to Granton, to Granton Harbour. And that was after both the rail bridge and the original fourth road bridge were open, but it didn't last. I'm going to say it maybe lasted for two summers and then obviously takes a lot of money to maintain a, a boat. You have to have enough passengers to make it worthwhile. So I don't know exactly what happened about that. For a while, there was a ferry. I reckon there could definitely be, it would be some popularity for it. I mean, for example, I, I live in Kakodi. Yeah, so yeah. I'm regularly going into Edinburgh. Yeah. When I go into Edinburgh, I like to go into North Edinburgh, which is near Granton. Yes, yes. The Leaf area. Yeah. And do I want to go in the opposite direction towards the bridges? Yeah. And yep. then back in again. Well, yep. Yep. I don't. there is a practicality issue in terms of public transport there. How feasible it is in terms of pricing is a different matter. Yeah, 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 yeah. With both members of the Scottish Green Party, a lot of these ferries, I would imagine, would, would use diesel, which, yeah. how sustainable can these things be? So it, that might need to be looked into. So we are staying in this, what I've called the introduction section, present to you. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself, who you are? May I ask how old you are, Fiona? You can tell. I was born in 1954. And so I am now 67. I am a child of the 60s and a teenager of the 70s. And so the music I love, I listen to Johnny Walker, Sounds of the 70s, every Sunday afternoon that I can, and just relive my youth. And in my heart, I am still 26. It's only when I look in the mirror, I think, actually, no, I'm nearly, I'm 67. <laughs> I suppose you would have grown up during the maybe a golden era of progressive politics, the CND, uh, yes, nuclear uh, campaigns, absolutely, uh, the hippie, absolutely, the hippie movement, the hippie movement. You know, we loved when John Lennon and Yoko Ono sang "All You Need Is Love" because that was what we thought we did. That was what all we thought we needed. I can remember when Woodstock happened. That was the summer, 1966, the summer of love. And people genuinely thought that war was over. You know, look at what's happening now. It's tragic. It's tragic. You know, we, we really thought that you know, life could be better. And then, of course, we had, as a, as, a, as a young student, I can remember we had the three-day week when we only had energy for three days out of seven. For us, in a way, it didn't really matter because we were young and we could go out and have fun, nevertheless. And then Margaret Thatcher's decision to decimate the trade union movement. And that was when I became a socialist. You are listening to Sustainable Sounds. Yet again, we find ourselves, like in the 70s, we find ourselves in <laughs> a conservative government which doesn't seem like it's ever going to finish. Or end. <laughs> oh, it's not like the Margaret Thatcher government that started in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
a lot of people would talk about we tried nationalizing certain industries back in this era it didn't work and they use that to hammer socialism now yes yes that's right what are the similarities with this time what are the differences what can we learn why would socialism work now when it didn't work then well i think possibly that i think maybe back then too that i think it was too easy for the unions to be blamed and we started to see the rise of far more of a a right-wing press, the Sun, the Times, Rupert Murdoch's empire, who were just so behind the Tory government and just echoed the, the sort of rhetoric against socialism and against the unions. And I'm not actually sure that that has gone. I was quite appalled. I learned recently that the paper that is most read in the UK is the Daily Mail. I'm not surprised. That doesn't give me much hope. (laughs) (laughs) But that notwithstanding too, we're seeing in the Green Party, in the Scottish Green Party, we're seeing a big surge in membership again. I joined originally during the surge after the Scottish referendum. But again, we're seeing another big surge as I suspect people are people that might have been formerly thinking that the Labour Party were actually finally going to get to get their act together, have realised that they're really not, and that Keir Starmer is as much of a unionist as Boris Johnson is, and is also pretty right-wing, and etc, etc, etc. So, I think what we learned is that the British establishment don't like socialism. And I don't really think that that has changed very much and I don't think it was helped by Margaret Thatcher's famous view you know more or less that there is no such thing as society there is no such thing as community and we ended up with a a generation essentially where greed is good and I think the only thing that brought about a change in that more recently was at the start of the pandemic and lockdown where we did actually see members of community pulling together to provide help sometimes help in the form of resources food parcels collecting medicines for them people going out of their way to help their neighbours. And I think that was good. You know, I think there were also some bad things happened as as a result of COVID too. But I think there was a lot of good happened and that people in communities began to look out for each other more, check that their elderly neighbours were managing okay, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah maybe a bit more stirrings of people working together, looking after the less well-off in their community. And it would be good to think that that's actually maybe set more of a pattern for the way people get on with each other and so on. Are you trying to describe a trial by fire? 
same situation. Almost, yes, yeah, yeah, because I think that when terrible things happen in a country, there are a lot of people who work together and try and make things better for the people that are suffering worse. Would you say that is the definition of socialism? Um, I would say it's getting very close to it. And then if you started talking about eco-socialism too, you would say that what we want to be doing is working for people and planet. I mean, my belief is that what we should have is a universal basic income. I think that what is being done to the people who receive benefits by our current UK government is absolutely appalling. If we substituted a whole host of benefits simply with a universal basic income, I mean, but there have been plenty of pilots. We certainly ran a pilot study in Fife. The usual suspects come out and talk about the fact, oh, people wouldn't want to work and blah, 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 blah. But the pilots and countries where they have an element of universal basic income haven't found that people don't want to work. They've found that people do still want to work. And it doesn't matter if you decide that you don't need your universal basic income. You could decide to donate that back to somebody who needs it more. Do you know what I mean? There would be a way to work that out. It just needs a little bit of political will, a little bit of thinking through, a little bit of working out what a suitable minimum level would be. And that would take out all of the nonsense that goes on about people claiming benefits, being asked to go for job interviews, that are miles away from where they live, that have no cognizance of what the person might actually be able to do or want to do. And then they're sanctioned because they can't get to the job interview. Because guess what? We don't have public transport that's actually public. We have private transport. Huh. That the only thing that's public about it is that members of the public use it, you know? It's not public transport. <laughs> People keep calling it public. This, our stagecoach bus isn't public. It's privately owned by stagecoach, you know, <laughs> and the public get it. <laughs> of course, the big thing recently, during the course of this podcast series, the Dutch company that was running and maintaining the Scotrail line yes. has put their hand up and said, we can't do this anymore. Yes, and, and handed the contract back to the Scottish government, which means yes. the Scotrail, the primary service, at least from our point of view, is the five to Edinburgh line, has come back into public ownership. Public ownership. I live in Kirkcaldy, and there was a, yep. a conversation of the scheduling changing to benefit not so much Kirkcaldy, but a different bit of Fife. Yeah, yeah. And so, of course, I of course I, I signed I signed a petition saying I want my train to Edinburgh because I I work in Edinburgh yeah, part, yeah, part of the week. So there's now it's now a different conversation within there, isn't there? Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm yeah. all for public ownership, but as long as I can get to work on time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Now, interestingly, Teo, I read. Oh no, 
I think it was by Leslie Ruder in The National. And she had recently visited the Netherlands, where, of course, Abellio run the trains. Sorry, Abellio, of course, being the company that... Who, who've... Yeah, Abellio run the trains in the Netherlands. And she said, you would not think it was the same company because in the Netherlands, Abellio run the trains properly to time. They don't have problems. People use the trains. They run on time. Daddy, 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 da. So I am not sure, and Leslie Ruddeth was not sure, how they'd run into so many problems here. And what I really wonder, Tim, if the problem here is that we have two different companies. We've got Network Rail that governs the lines and the tracks. And we've got another train company that runs the trains. And I don't know if that's maybe what leads to problems. I've had a conversation with a, um, a friend of mine from university. Now, I played hockey at university. Now, if you play hockey at a university in England, you're going to end up drinking with a lot of Tories. It's, it's a good mate of mine, but we differ on some opinions, right? It, yeah, yeah. Now, now, this is a guy who said to me, he doesn't, in the past, he doesn't like Boris Johnson. So he's not that sort of Tory. Yeah, okay. But we have some different opinions on some things. One of which is the rail lines. Right? I want nationalisation. I want us to rip up the entire thing and start again and relay some of these old Victorian rail lines. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's saying that's going to cause huge destruction for workers and the economy and industry. It's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take years to do. It's not worth it. Now, I'm thinking HS2. For more on HS2, listen to episode two with the secretary of the five branch, David Hanson, who has a yeah, different opinion yeah. to me on HS2 yeah, for yeah, their yeah, balance. Yeah. But if you've got the money for that, then I think that we can actually relay a lot of this stuff. But that would actually, like what you're saying, we need to have a centralised system and not two or three different yeah. groups chatting to each other. I think so. I think so. You want to get involved in green politics? Follow the Scottish Greens on social media. Because the other nonsense that's currently going on is all this rise in energy prices because we are thrilled to a global gas market that somehow is immutable, can't change, and yet we are actually getting most of our electricity from renewable sources that are operating in Scotland. And yet those two things don't seem to be compatible. You know, <laughs> how is this happening? I don't know. You know, I really don't know. And that's the trouble with an awful lot of the nonsense that goes on about oil and gas. You know, I hear Boris Johnson talking about relicensing oil wells and all the rest of it in the North Sea, but there is no reason why that gas would come to us because actually gas is sold to the highest bidder. That's the work of a free market economy, isn't it? It's, it's the work of a free market economy. And from a Tory perspective, the market will sort itself out. But what we can see quite clearly is that is not the case. That isn't what happens. We end up with a whole lot of lowest common denominators instead of 
actually doing things that help people and make use of the natural resources that Scotland has. This is a big thing for me, and language is important. So when the Tories talk about a free market economy and deregulation, and when the socialists talk about regulation for positive effects, what we're talking about is regulation in order to make sure we know what the end result is going to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so that you can actually plan for the outcomes that you want. The Tories have a different plan for what they want. What they want yeah, is, exactly. is to get the most money from somewhere from anywhere. Exactly. That will at least in some aspect have a different end result to what, what a regulated socialist economy might have. Yes, I think so. I think so. I hope so. So this always happens in all my podcasts. We get stuck into political viewpoints and completely lose the thread of what's the initial section meant to be. Yeah. Like you. You, who are you, Fiona? Let's talk about right. you. Okay. Uh, so, so, you mentioned that you were studying at some point back in the 70s. Yes. What were you studying? Yes. So, I studied chemistry. And I studied chemistry because it was my favourite subject at school. And I went to Heriot Watt University. I left school from fifth year, not sixth year, because I was finding my little bolshy self when I was about 16 and I got very fed up at school when we had a lecture from the head teacher who talked to us all as if we were still children and I went home and I said to my parents that I was going to apply for university through clearing and I was going to do chemistry and I visited Edinburgh University and I got the bus up to King's Buildings, which is where they have the chemistry department at Edinburgh University. And I went in and nobody was really very helpful. And so I left and then I went to Heriot Watt, which was at that time in Chambers Street. That was before they moved the whole campus out to Rickerton. But they were in Chambers Street and I was waiting for the lift and there was a man waiting beside me. And we got in the lift and he said, you know, what have you come for? And I said, well, I'm hoping to come here to do chemistry and apply through clearing. And he said, oh, I'm the person that deals with that, he said. And I thought, well, this must be a good sign. And so he had a chat with me and I did apply through clearing. And I got into Heriot Watt that September and... Our first two years were in Chambers Street, in the Chambers Street building. And then they were building the new campus at Rickerton because, I mean, it was becoming evident even when I was there that the building at Chambers Street wasn't, wasn't really big enough for what the university was becoming. And as well as that, a lot of the, you know, the labs were still like old labs you know, that you could have imagined Benjamin Franklin working in and Edison scratching their names in the wooden desks and things like that. And I can remember, we're still, we were using benzene for God's sake and we were still using mouth pets, you know. (laughs) Health and safety hadn't really 
arrived in the 1970s, you know. <laughs> but I had a I had a great time at university. I loved it. And well, in first year, we did chemistry, maths, and physics, and we did our maths with the engineers. So that was the chemical engineers, the mechanical engineers, the civil engineers. And so myself and the two other girls that were in first year chemistry, we were kind of, you know, we stuck together because the rest of them were all men. You know? So I'd be in a lecture theatre with maybe 400 of us and 397 men and three women, you know. It's still an issue these days, I believe, that women in science quotas and so on. It's, it's less so. I mean, the numbers in chemistry certainly have evened up a bit. Physics and maths are still a bit male-dominated, but the girls doing the courses tend to do best. Biology gets more women than men. Biochemistry and chemistry get kind of, they're up to about 50-50. So things have improved, things have got better, certainly in, in, you know, in chemistry. There are more women studying chemistry. Certainly after I went into teaching, especially latterly, I saw far more women coming through as chemistry students than young men coming through as chemistry students. So, yeah, yeah, I think things are definitely improving. You can join the Scottish Greens at greens.scot slash join. What do you do now? Well, I've retired. Lovely. I retired two years ago, Theo. I'd been, I'd been teaching um, in Fife for just over 10 years. I taught in Lothian for 15 years. And then in the middle, I had five other jobs. And I had them all for about three years. But round about 2010, I left teaching. Well, there was two reasons. One was that I rather lost my love affair with chemistry. And I rather lost it because of all the chemical disasters that had happened. You know, BPs, oil spills, and some of the... Oh, it was a terrible disaster in India, in a chemical plant that killed a lot of people. The pollution that some of it was causing. Oh, I really was beginning to lose my love of chemistry. And I couldn't see at that time that it wasn't actually the chemistry that was the problem. It was corporate greed that was the problem, right? But the other thing that happened was that I was pregnant with my who became my daughter. And I began to just resent the time it was taking me to get to Edinburgh, whether I drove and spent the time sitting in a queue on the Forth Road Bridge, or whether I took the train that sometimes didn't come, sometimes was so busy that it was just a complete hassle. And I think those two things actually became a kind of code for actually me not really wanting to leave my daughter very much. And so what I decided to do 
was leave teaching or, but before I left teaching, I started looking and I decided that the longest I wanted to travel from where I lived was half an hour. So Kirkcaldy, Glenrothes, going in the other direction, I could get to Falkirk, Linlithgow, you know, I could get to a reasonable number of places where I might get work. And the first job I got as a part-time job, which was also what I was looking for, <laughs> but I got a 20-hour-a-week job based in Kirkcaldy with a project called the Voluntary Sector Equality Initiative. And I got the job because latterly in my teaching days, I'd become the equalities coordinator for a cluster of high schools who were all trying to do exactly what I was just describing in a way, to get less stereotyping around second year or third year subject choices, where you still had lots and lots of girls doing home economics and lots and lots of boys doing techie subjects. And so we were really trying to challenge um, that kind of stereotypical subject choice model. When was this? That was in the, you know, when would that have been? That would have been the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. So you've been promoting feminism fundamentally, but equal opportunities for Absolutely. about 30, 35 years now. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. Actually, from before that. <laughs> Actually, from before that. And that gave it purpose. I could tackle this stereotypical subject choice thing. And we ran as a group of four schools, four high schools, the equalities folk in each school, including me, we decided we'd run an event for parents around the time of second year subject choice. And we had a presentation, you know, we did a presentation, didn't have PowerPoint in those days. <laughs> but we had lots of posters and we got stuff from the Equal Opportunities Commission and we had posters up on the walls and we did have some posters and some charts and, you know, things to display. And, you know, we, we did a talk to these parents. And it's certainly you could see that the parents were starting to think that actually maybe their sons and daughters could have a broader choice and could maybe do things they wanted to do. So it's talking to people, it's breaking down barriers. It's, yes. It's engaging. It's engaging. Over a long period of time. Over a long period of time, trying to change minds and almost drip feed ideas. And in the job that I got, the Voluntary Sector Equality Initiative, what had happened was a lot of voluntary organisations in Fife are funded by Fife Council or get some funding from Fife Council. And there was a rumour that had some truth in it that the organisations that Fife Council funded were going to be asked to have equal opportunities policies. And most of the organisations in Fife that were funded by Fife Council didn't have a clue 
They didn't know what was meant by equal opportunity for a start. They didn't know how to do a policy either. So my job was to support them to do that. So I spent time going round management committees, some in afternoons, some at night time, around Fife, you know, Cooper, Kirkcaldy, Glenrothes, some in Dunfermline. And I had to chat to them about how they might draft some kind of equal opportunities policy. And I had games and tasks and sometimes I got them to do role play, which they hated, but it really brought out the issues. And sometimes I had to start it off, you know, um, and be a waif or a cheeky teenager or, you know, whatever I needed to be. And then they kind of realised that maybe I wasn't asking them to do anything too difficult. But, you know, it was a great job. I loved it. And I wrote two books in the process as guides for the voluntary organisations. And the first one was more about how to write a policy and the sorts of things they should think about. And I did it based on sort of case studies using fictitious organisations. And then the second book that I wrote was more a pulling together of some of the games and tasks and things like that that I'd got people to do. So I was employed by Fife Council and my line manager was in the equalities bit of Fife Council. And that, as I said, that worked really well. And I did that until what began to happen was after Fife Council became a regional authority, uh, so that would be, what, in 1995? The first thing they decided to do was that they didn't want a lot of duplication. So prior to that, there had been, for example, there had been three women's aid organisations, one based in Dunfermline, one based in Kirkcaldy, one based in Glenrothes. And the first thing they decided was that they weren't going to have three different women's aid organisations. They weren't going to fund them. They could have one, and that would be five-wide, and so there would be five Women's Aid, and that was how it would be funded. So that was kind of the writing on the wall. And then they did the same thing with the three voluntary support organisations. And the three voluntary support organisations became CVS Fife, and wasn't quite able to offer the same service level that the individual voluntary sector support organisations could. CVS Fife weren't encouraged to be as hands-on, you know, they weren't supposed to be helping people with their photocopying and helping them to understand how to use computers. CVS Fife was to be much more strategic. Hey there, this is Colin McEwen and you are listening to the Sustainable Sounds podcast. And welcome back to the musical guest segment of Sustainable Sounds. You join us with our guest musician today, Colin McEwen. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me again. Hey, Colin, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Very, very good indeed. Thank you. How are you? Very good, very good. Colin, what is important to you about green politics? 
boy oh boy it's obviously it's it's that forum for trying to thrash out how best to move forward together isn't it it's a really important thing i think the most important thing i would say in politics is quite interesting in politics as it is or the most important element that could do with being developed is conversations dialogue is debate but actually i think learning the thing i find about politics in terms of party politics is the i'm going to sort of do a bit of um not soapboxing but more of like well where are we moving to what are we moving to is that i don't think the system that we have at present seems to rely on an idea that you've got to sell yourself as having the complete solution and then you try and sell that based on one little bit that you want to sell and Nobody has a monopoly in wisdom, truth, knowledge, expertise, or understanding of what's happening in the world. We need to represent all voices and then try and figure out fairly how to move that forward, which I think the certainly proportional representation presents that. And I think that idea of representation is so important, is, is essential. I'd also say that to be able to listen and have a bit of respect, because it's some of them, I mean, it's just getting vitriolic just now. It's too simplistic right now. It's too simplistic. It's too... But when we're under pain, when we're under pressure, when we're under stress, we kind of want somebody just to point and go that way. And maybe the that way that we need to be pointing to is respect and regard and dialogue. You are providing us with some musical entertainment for this episode. Indeed. What is the song that you are bringing to this episode? The song is it's my green song, it's my recycling song. It's called Bury Me on a Hillside. And it is literally my recycling song. It's my self-recycling song. I, I wrote this. Literally, I sat and started writing it when I was watching an online funeral. And it was a funeral for a very old friend of mine called Ricky. And I knew Ricky because Ricky was one of a, a group of men I was very fortunate to meet. I practiced Buddhism. And I met him when, through this practice that I got involved in. I was a very lost young man. I would say that, yeah, at the age of 21, I was a very, very lost young man. I was given the wrong roadmap. That's how I sometimes best describe it, you know. And the roadmap that I was given didn't match the reality of the world that I found when I left school. And the, the trajectory that I was supposedly set upon didn't work. And I met, I met a practice of Buddhism. I'm a Sokagakai Buddhist, which some people may have heard, which at Namya Horenge Kyo. And I was very fortunate when I met this. I didn't really understand this until just in the last few years, that the key thing that I met when I encountered this practice and this organization was functional men, functional, supportive men. And I was really nurtured and, and supported by them. And Ricky was one of those. And I'm also at a point now where the, the grown-ups, the grown-ups are dying. <laughs> the grown-ups are dying. I'm 64 years of age. The grown-ups are dying. They're disappearing. They're disappearing into dementia. And unfortunately, the world's run by bloody children, spoiled boys and girls. But I mean, right now it's dominated by some very stupid spoiled boys. And Ricky was a grown-up. So anyway, it got me thinking about what would I like? Because I have to start dealing with that. I'm still facing that. So I, I had a meeting just um, just started talking about power of attorney with, uh, with my kids and what might my legacy be. And this song was really well kind of going through the idea of uh, 
you know, where would, where would I like to be buried? I'd like to be buried in because I've got to do that. I'm looking at that. I should like, let's organize that. A friend of mine just died. It took us two weeks to find he died because he hadn't left the proper contact details for how to deal with it. I thought I'd like a tidy ending. And I also like an idea of, well, where would I be? And, and very much part of, you know, the philosophy of, that's a part of my practice is that life, my life is a manifestation of life. How will I continue? How will life continue? What will this continue as? So anyway, that's what it's about. It gets a bit deep for um, a song, but hey, it was, it was just a, a kind of an, an honest response and quite hopeful as well. I really enjoyed writing. I was thinking about all the things I could be. You know, I could bury me in a hillside, plant me a tree, and then I could be a table, I could be a chair, I could be a whistle, I could be all these things. So I quite like the idea. I like the idea of coming back as, as whistles, actually. So that's it. It's called Bury Me on a Hillside. Where can people find your back catalogue? Back catalogue. Well, a good place to start is facebook.com forward slash Luthery Lockdown. Luthery, where I live. L-U-T-H-R-I-E. I hear you all joining in with, if you've been paying attention. And that will, there'll be information there. Also on Luthery Lockdown, uh, YouTube, I beg your pardon, YouTube com forward slash Luthery Lockdown, and you'll find some of the songs that we recorded in that glorious year of lockdown in the front garden, just across the road, and the garage. And here is Bury Me on a Hillside. Bury me on a hillside, planting me a tree. Sit beneath my shade, then chance a table I will be. Chairs to sit upon, beakers, bowls, and spoons, logs for the fire, a whistle for some tunes. A good strong staff for the path adventure takes you on. Paper and pencil to write words of hope and love. Frame for a picture of the olive branch and of Let me ne'er be used in anger As a club or a spear Never let my presence Invoke anger or fear Oh no, no Let my use be for the best Very best can be Let me be the scroll Where joy is writ for all to see Tree. 
Sit beneath my shade and one day lay down next to me. us at Fife Women's Network. Look out for more information soon. So building a community. So I'm looking to talk a bit more about your candidacy for the local elections on May the yeah. 5th. Yeah. You are the Scottish Green candidate for Rossife in West yes. How do you engage with the Rossife community? Well, what I need to do what I have done is I make sure that I am meeting local people in the shops and supermarkets of Rosyth and in and around the coastal villages as well so I make sure that I'm using local shops the Sainsbury's, the Tesco in Rosyth, our local shop, and I talk to people. I don't talk about anything particularly political, but I always talk. I don't like using automatic checkouts. I like going through actual checkouts, and I always ask people how they are and just have a little bit of chat. And same in my local shops. Same if I'm local people, I always say hello to them and make nice small talk. So if people see my photograph, they will probably recognise me because I'm known as a member of the community. So what have you learned from these conversations? What have you picked up? What well, what I've picked up is that just as you can imagine too, in the shops, people are, are worried about price going up, prices of food. People who get the bus, who don't have free bus passes like I do, people are worried that bus fares will rise because fuel prices are rising, so bus fares will go up. People are worried about their energy bills coming around the corner. And yet, there is also still, in all the communities that are in the ward, there is also still a fighting spirit, a spirit that is there that wants to support people that don't have enough. You know, so that's what I'm learning about the community, that actually the community are quite resilient and want to be able to support one another. Talking about the rise in costs for bus travel and public transport, of course, the Scottish Green Party at a national level have introduced free bus travel for young people. Yes, yes. And I think that is a huge benefit to and That's going to be a benefit for young people getting across the river to Edinburgh, going to college, going to Dundee, going to Perth, Dundee College, Perth College, Dundee Unis. They'll be able to use the bus. Academic 
uh, vocational benefits. academic vocational apprenticeships getting jobs getting jobs getting jobs being able to move for work even you know 21 you're looking get out, out and about and then we meet someone pretty and nice and have a good yeah. time and so I think that's great. And that, what I would hope to is almost to see that begin to be able to be extended a bit further up to 25-year-olds, make it better at each end, you know. What has really impressed me, Teo, I thought that, you know, the Scottish government did a big consultation on the free bus travel for over 60s. And I thought that it might be changed and the change that I thought might be made is that they would up the age you know it would be free bus travel from 63 or 65 or something like that and it, it would make sense because state pension age is rising and rising and rising but after all the consultation they didn't make any change because right now, of course, my mum, when she turned 60, she got a free bus pass. Yep, 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 yep. You were concerned that to give younger people a free bus pass, that my mum might have lost hers. until. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Well, that's right, too. Yeah. I thought that might be what happened. But it's, not, actually, it's not happened. It's, but not, it's happened. not happened. It's not happened. And I think that's fantastic. I think that's fantastic because... I mean, I responded to the consultation and I, I said I thought it should stay as it was because what has happened is that it has allowed an older generation to continue to live and to go out with their friends, to meet their friends, to enjoy their life and to contribute to the economy, to go out and shop, you know, to go, to go out to theatres, to go out to plays, to go out to gigs contribute to the local economy of Fife and elsewhere. So in terms of bringing people together, public transport, you reckon is a strong, strong link here? Yeah. Your local branch, you are standing in West Fife. In, yes. In local elections, May the 5th, vote green, May the 5th. Get vote that. green number one. Vote green number one. Are you a member of the West Fife branch, sub-branch? Yes, I am. I'm the co-convener of the West Fife branch. So myself and Ryan are co-conveners of the West Fife sub-branch. And interestingly, Teo, we became sub-branches at the first Fife Greens AGM that I went to after I joined the party. Was it a military coup, was it? He turned out, <laughs> I'm in charge now. <laughs> no, 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 nothing like that. But now, that would have been in, I think that was probably in the November of 2015. And what had become clearer was that West Fife, bits of West Fife, were becoming very under threat of fracking. There was a threat in Kincardine. They were talking about fracking in Kincardine because there are, I mean, there is shale gas under the sand at Kincardine. So that was looming. And there was a guy who was very active in the local community in Kincardin. I think he's still a member of the of Fife Greens. Donald was his name. And he was really leading the fight against fracking in Kincardin. And also looking for much more of a just transition. 
for the Long Gannett workers than anything that was happening locally. And the community were supposed to get money and oh, none of that ever came to pass, you know. But what was really becoming evident, we met in the AGM, we divided into three groups, West Fife, Mid Fife and North East Fife. And what became apparent was that the issues in each of the three subgroup areas were really pretty different. It's a broad church, Fife, isn't it? There's really it's a broad church. Yeah, yeah. So that was when we split into, into the three sub-branches. So in terms of a community ethos, you split up, still joined in terms of the larger Fife branch. Yes. You have greater emphasis and greater input into your local communities. That's right. That's because that's under the Scottish Green Party constitution. Sub-branches can be created by their parent branch, but the parent branch is still responsible for all the money. Okay. Sub-branches can carry out local campaigning, but their local campaigning has to tie in with their parent branch and also with the National Party. So sub-branches can't go off on some weird direction of their own. It's got to reflect the branch party and the National Party. You can join the Scottish Greens at greens.scot slash join. Who do you represent in West Fife then? What does West Fife cover? So West Fife covers from Kincardine across to Cowdenbeath and Kelty, and then including the, the ward of Inverkeething and Dalgetty Bay, so including North Queen's Ferry and Aberdour, and then Aberdour on the coast is kind of the cut-off line because Mid Fife covers from sort of Aberdour east and then going north from there, covering Glenrothes and the communities around Markinch and all of that bit. And then northeast Fife is what was formerly really the northeast Fife district of Fife Council. So it really covers all of the rural farmland area and the coastal communities of northeast Fife. How can people get involved? So what should happen is when folk join the Scottish Green Party, when you put your address in, the membership secretary for your branch should get a message to say that you've joined the party. And so our Fife branch membership secretary is Doreen. And so what she does is she then sends out a welcome email and the National Party send out your membership number and whatnot. And they also tell you what parent branch you will be a member of. But Doreen sends out a welcome email and tells people about their sub-branch and tells them when the sub-branch meets. If you want to get involved, what you do is you turn up at a meeting. And it almost seems like, it seems not far off every year since I've joined the party, there's been an election of one kind or another. So there's canvassing, there's... There's leafleting, there's canvassing, yeah, yeah. And 
it took me a wee while tail to be confident about canvassing. I was confident enough to initially, see, I think it's a journey for people in the Green Party. And I think everybody's greatest fear, and certainly mine was about canvassing, is that somebody's going to ask you about a policy that you don't know about. And then I realised that actually what people really want to talk about much more is what's bothering them. And in that 2016 council election, so some people told us quite a lot. And because it was the local elections, we thought we needed to gather that information about what people were concerned about. Yeah, so, and also the fact that we were asking people for them to tell us. So what we actually had to be was not so much good at what our policy was, except in the most broad and generic terms. What we had to actually be good at was listening. We are also, as a Scottish Green Party, National Party, Local Party, looking for more women to get involved, aren't we? Yes, yes. And I think, sadly too, I think part of the problem has been the lockdown and COVID because that's given us less opportunity to actually meet in less formal settings than actual meetings. It's been harder just to have conversations with a wider range of members and a wider range of women members. I mean, I know Mags is very vexed because we managed to get a balanced slate. You know, we managed to meet our gender balance and we managed to stand a target in every ward in, uh, not 2016, 2017. That's, sorry, that's Mags Hall, who is the Scottish Green candidate for Dunfermline North. Yes. And when you talk about gender balance, we look to have as many men and women on the back paper and and in office roles as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And I think we have to bring women on a journey. I think very few women in the party, I mean, I did stand in the last council elections and I stood in this ward in Rasai and I did a little bit of canvassing locally, just myself. So by that time, I had got behind more of just listening to what people wanted to talk about. You are listening to Sustainable Sounds. As we begin to wind up, as the council candidate for North South, yes. the Scottish Green Party candidate yes. for North South, yes. why should the people of the North South Ward vote for you? I think they should vote for me, too, because I care about people in this community. I want to see people having better opportunities more locally. I would want to work with other councillors, particularly around things like access to jobs, things like getting district energy heating systems set up. You know, lots and lots of relatively small communities Parts of Rosyth, Lime Kilns itself, there would be nothing difficult about getting a district heating scheme set up that the communities might actually buy into. But I think I would need council support for that. 
I don't think that would just happen. You know, I think there would need to be a little bit of impetus, maybe a bit of seed corn funding put in by a council to get things like that happen. I'd like to see some of the cycle routes that are in their infancy in Fife being developed further so that people can actually walk, cycle or wheel in what might become an almost 20 minute neighbourhood. And so that's the reasons that I think people might want to vote Green number one and vote for me. On May the 5th? May the 5th in the local council elections and people should have now received their polling cards which tell them where they should vote and if they're not yet registered to vote they can do that by the 18th of April. What are your hopes and plans for the future? So my hopes and plans for the future tale is that in this local government election that we do elect our target candidate for our sub-branch and for our Fife branch in Dalgetty and Inverkeithing. But I also hope that we might just elect one or two more of the people that are standing as Green councillors, not by accident, but because people have actually put us as their number one preference. I hear the guy in, in Kokodi Centre is particularly clever. Yep, yep, yep. Excellent, excellent stuff. And that's what I want to know. Do you know what I mean? I think that we're coming from quite a low base in Fife, and I know that, but apparently 82% of people in Scotland believe that climate change is the biggest threat that we are facing. And the Scottish Greens are the party that have a plan to tackle all of the things we need to do as part of an actual Green New Deal, not a UK government Green New Deal that tinkers around the edges doesn't give anybody enough money to do anything sensible. But the Scottish Green Party actually have a plan. And I would really like to be able to see that being rolled out through local authorities. But I think we're going to need a good group of Green councillors in Fife to get that happening here. Fiona McOwen of the West Fife branch of the Scottish Green Party. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Tim. This has been a Half Court Press production by Teo McLeod for the Scottish Green Party. Music was provided by Colin McEwen.